You know, everybody knows I love a good study. I love the results of a good study. I just love it. I just love it. And then a new study came out. And the headline is, Pornography might serve as a means of existential escape among those suffering from boredom. Might. <laughs> Pornography might serve as a means of existential escape among those suffering from boredom. Now, now I'm going to read the article. And I haven't actually read it. I read like the first two paragraphs. And uh, I decided that I need to just narrate this out loud. And I, I got a little bit of a mean spirit in me tonight. I, I felt good today, but just, it actually, the mean spirit, <laughs> the mean spirit manifested the second I saw this. So here's the article. Bored people may turn to pornographic content to distract from the perception that their life is meaningless, according to new research published in Personality and Individual Differences. Previously, my colleagues and I found that when people experience boredom, it poses a threat to their sense of meaning in life. As an escape from this adverse existential experience, people may subsequently engage in hedonic behaviors explained study author Andrew B. Moynihan of the University of Limerick. Is that a real university? The University of Limerick? Let me just reread that for a second. Previously, this is an academic working for a university. This is a scientific study. And he says, previously, my colleagues and I found that when people experience boredom, it poses a threat to their meaning, their sense of meaning of life. his colleagues in him found. So he's referring to his academic colleagues as if that's something that requires any kind of expertise, as if that's not the most intuitive thing. When you're bored, it's a threat to your sense of meaning in life. Freaking duh. Freaking duh. We found that people may engage in unhealthy eating, impulsiveness, or endorse promiscuous attitudes in this context. In the current paper, we investigated whether pornography consumption, at least in some circumstances, may also serve as an escape from the threat to meaning in life posed by boredom. Jesus, I want to hurt this person. You know, I, I, I'm a peaceful guy, believe it or not, but I, I actually want to hurt this person. It takes academic studies. These people get grants. They get funding. They're paid to do this. And then, and then people pat them on the back. Because the reason I even found this is because people were making a big deal about it. They're like, oh my God, can you believe it? That people look at porn because they're bored? And now he's saying people engage in unhealthy eating, impulsiveness, or endorse promiscuous attitudes because they're bored. Who the fuck are these people? We need to hurt them. We actually need to hurt these people. Psychically, of course. I'm not talking, you know, I've never hurt a fly physically. We need to psychically hurt these people. I mean, my mom, my mom told me that growing up. Like when I was a kid and I would go to the pantry for a snack, she'd be like, are you eating because you're hungry or eating because you're bored? She didn't prevent me from doing it, but she just asked me that one time. And I was like, you know what? I never thought of that. I'm eating because I'm bored. I still do it. Promiscuous attitudes, I mean, obviously. People are, are you know, they, they seek anything out because they're bored, of course. 
And I like how they pose it though, like it may, it may contribute. We know it fucking contributes. You're being paid to figure this out. You're being paid to research this and you can't even state it definitively, even though it's the most obvious thing you could ever imagine if you're just a human being living through life. I'm turning into a demon here. The study, which surveyed 179 adults living in Ireland or the United Kingdom, found that boredom proneness and emotional avoidance mediated the association between perceived meaningless and pornography use. What a fucking wordful. All you have to say is people look at porn because they're bored. I knew that when I was a freaking teenager. When I was a teenage boy, sometimes I would look at porn. Just I wasn't even horny. I wasn't even turned on. I was just like, oh, I'm going to look at porn because that'll eat up a half hour. And, and I hope I get horny. I hope I get horny. Hoping to get horny. But it's like that, just that, that jumble of words. In other words, people who agreed with statements such as, my life has no clear purpose, were more likely to agree with statements such as, in most situations, it is hard for me to find something to do to see or to do or see to keep me interested and pornography provides an opportunity to be distracted from life's challenges which in turn was related to more frequent pornography use so they're saying that people who agreed with the statement my life has no clear purpose and they're having difficulty finding interesting things found that porn provides an opportunity to be distracted and that led to more pornography use these are academics these people call themselves scientists. They call themselves social scientists. These are It's the definition of a midwit. This is the definition of a midwit. This is somebody of completely average intelligence who fell into a system where this is allowed. Greater perceived meaningless was also associated with using pornography for sexual pleasure, pleasure and to provide novelty in life. This paper contributes to psycholo psychological research on pornography consumption by highlighting how it may be used for emotional avoidance, excitement seeking, and sexual pleasure in response to boredom, Moynihan told SciPost. Specifically, our study suggests that pornography consumption, at least in some circumstances, may function as a means of dealing with perceived meaningless, signaled by boredom. How many ways can they say that same thing? They just keep rephrasing that. Our study incorporates pornography consumption as a means of existential escape from threats to meaning in life. To our knowledge, this phenomenon has not been researched previously in the existential escape literature. Yeah, the reason it hasn't been researched is because it's fucking obvious. And you eat up money that could go to a million other things. Everyone's always talking about, oh, money's going here. Money's going to all the wrong places. Oh, that money could be better used to help people, to feed people. And this is what they spend it on. But they, they don't protest this. That's the amazing thing. The sort of people who are always telling everybody else, like, where tax money should go, where this money should go, how you should spend your money. They're the same people who are like, yeah, we need to fund universities so they can tell you that people look at porn because they're bored. So they can tell you that people overeat because they're bored. Something that we all just know for, a, you know, if you've ever, if you've ever overeaten, if you've ever binge eaten, if you've ever looked at porn with any consistency in your life, you just know this. 
The findings are in line with a previous study. Oh, good. Oh, great. Which found that perceived meaninglessness was associated with sexual sensation seeking via boredom susceptibility. But the authors noted that it is not possible to establish temporal relationships between the variables because of the cross-sectional nature of the research, making it difficult to determine whether perceived meaninglessness caused the observed outcomes. Future research should aim to replicate the findings in our paper using experience sampling for experimental methods, longitudinal or latent cross-legged designs. Cross-legged. L-A-G-G-E-D. I don't know what that means. Man, that's, that's the end of the article. You know, I, I've been using that crow one as an example for the last couple years, that study that's like crows are capable of experiencing self-reflection and thought. And I always, you know, I bring that up like every other episode. Just it's like, yeah, that's, that's why every pagan culture used crows as, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, that's why every pagan culture, that's why mythology all over the world has used crows and ravens as almost human-like companions, as, as, as spiritual companions to gods. And Oh, man. This one's, this one's far worse, though. And I know this is probably, this is just one of many. I mean, this is one of endless. This is most of what they do. And you notice how the guy who wrote it, this academic, he's like, future research should. So it's like, there's even more to come. Let's find out how many ways that we can discover the obvious and act like we're doing something. You know, here's something that they should look into. One of the main causes of bullying is boredom, too. A lot of bullies, they, they bully people because they're bored. They're just like, I'm fucking bored and I'm not very happy, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to bully this kid. I've been really bored lately myself. I've been way more bored than I've been in a long time. I don't know why. I'm willing to take the blame for that. I'm not going to blame the world because I've been bored. I, I hate being bored. Not because I hate the feeling of being bored. I just have immense guilt. I don't believe in being bored. So when I'm bored, I hate it. Not the boredom itself. I just, I don't like to acknowledge that I'm bored. But, you know... I think what would cure my boredom is bullying this motherfucker. I would like to bully these academics. We need bullying. Not horrible, like, you don't want people to torment and torture each other. But we need to put people in their place. <laughs> you know, we need, we, need to, <laughs> we need to set people straight. Because this is what you get. What you end up with is... We've discovered that pornography may help people escape from a feeling of meaninglessness and boredom. Just say it like it is. People jack off because they got nothing better to do. People jack off because they got nothing better to do. Just say it like it is. What an embarrassment. I'm just going all in here. I don't, I, 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 no reservation. Just what an embarrassment. What an embarrassing time we live in. We always look back in the past and we're like, oh, it's so embarrassing they thought that way. What an embarrassing time we live in. What an embarrassing group of people who think that they're part of some, you know, thinking class. Like, these are the thinkers. 
We're the thinkers. We're the thinkers. This is midwit shit. This is this is what people of average intelligence do with their time. This is what people who are milking the system do. Who don't have anything better to do. At least give it an edge. Break it down by race or something. Tell us which races tend to look at more porn. <laughs> you know, tell us something. Give us something interesting. Make it controversial somehow. But that's just psychology in a nutshell. Social psychology today. That's what they end up uh, thinking about, researching, spending money on. And, and people think it's important. Oh, it's fun, though. It's, it's a lot of fun. Oh, we're on the subject of psychology. A couple weeks ago, a friend told me, her mom, who knows me, I'm a friend of the family, and I've done some work for them in the past, and, and I, got, I always gotten along with them really well. My friend's a very good friend of mine. But she told me, like, she's like, my mom sent me an article about antisocial personality disorder and, like, thought it might apply to you. And I was like, What? There must be something must have got lost in translation because her mom's a mental health professional and I've always been I've always gotten along well with her. She's a very stoic, quiet woman. I really like her. I've never gotten the impression she has a negative opinion of me. Like their family was going through some problems and, you know, I was there for them just because I, I care about them. But, uh, like, something must have... I can't possibly imagine that her mom thinks I have antisocial personality disorder. But it makes me wonder, because, I mean, people have always confused asocial with antisocial. And, I mean, here I, <laughs> here I am talking about this right after I just went on a rant about, how, like, we need to bully these academics out of this shit. We need to get this out of their system by bullying them. We need to hurt them. Now, in reality, like, I mean, I just couldn't fathom it, like, because people, people have always confused, like, the colloquial use of antisocial is actually asocial. Like, you know, growing up, you always hear people say this about themselves. They're like, oh, I've been so antisocial lately. I haven't gone out for weeks. I just stay home and watch Netflix and get takeout and let my net, I, I'm just developing my Netflix body, which is a very specific type of body. I talked about that when I, uh, I think I first coined that term when I was running in the woods by my house and I came to a clearing and saw this chubby couple having doggy style sex on a boulder. Just this chubby kind of nerdy looking couple. I've never seen anybody having sex. I've never in my life seen people having sex in the wild. Like I've spent so much time in the woods just thousands upon thousands of hours out in the woods. I've never just seen people having sex. And I, I was running, and I, I know I did an episode about it the, the night that it happened, but I ran down to this clearing. And it wasn't very, it was just, it's right off the main trail. Kids go down there. It leads down to a lake, and the kids are walking by there. And I, I hear a weird noise. It doesn't sound, it didn't make me think of sex or anything, but I just, I just heard kind of a weird noise. And then 
I kept running and then I, I came across this couple and like she's on all fours on a boulder and he's behind her, you know, doing what he's doing. And they're like, they're just this kind of chubby. I immediately thought like, oh, Netflix bodies. They got Netflix bodies. It's a very specific type of body. It's a weird form of chubby. You know it when you see it. Netflix bodies. Nothing wrong with it. Just I know what it is. I know what you do. You watch, you binge watch on Netflix and you eat. You're not, it's not, it's not obesity. And it's interesting because different people can have Netflix body. Like these, this couple, they looked more like, they were kind of squat. Like they were definitely fat. But you can be skinny and have a Netflix body. I've noticed this with guys who watch too much Netflix. They're skinny and they have bad posture, but they have this little pot belly. It's not a beer belly. It's this weird little pot belly. And it's a Netflix body. A lot of guys have it these days. Because a lot of them are, you know what they're doing with their time. Someone should do a study on that. Studies show that people watch Netflix when they're bored. And they eat while they're doing it. People who, who feel like life is meaningless watch Netflix. But Netflix bodies, um, anyway, what was I, I was talking about antisocial personality disorder. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know why I started talking about Netflix bodies. Seeing that couple have sex, did I have any reason to bring that up? I don't know. But yeah, any, anyway, my, <laughs> my friend's mom was like, oh, I was talking about like antisocial and asocial how I, I know what it was. it was i was talking about how like people who just stay inside and watch netflix and are working on their netflix body will be like i've just been so anti-social lately and all they mean is asocial like people say that about someone else too like oh he's so anti-social like he never goes to he never goes out what they mean is asocial they mean it's like they're averse to socializing anti-social is criminal like that means you do destructive mean heartless things it means you're manipulative, thieving. Antisocial means like you're against the very foundations of a functioning society. And because my mom's, or because my friend's mom is in the mental health field, I feel like she would know that distinction. Because I would call my, you know, I can be very outgoing, but I am asocial. Like, I don't like to make plans with people. I'm very solitary. At this point, I've gone full into it. Like, the last few years, I've just cut ties with everybody except for a select few people. And uh, so, I mean, she's she, it's valid. If she thinks I'm asocial, that's valid. But something must have gotten lost in translation because I can't imagine this woman who I get along with well thinks I'm antisocial. Like... I've never done anything, <laughs> you know, I've never, never done anything manipulative, destructive, or mean, or anything like that. I'm guessing, like, my friend just relayed the information wrong. But it did get me thinking, like, it, it didn't make me feel bad or anything. You know, sometimes someone will say something like that about you, 
and you start think you 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 go inward and you start really thinking about it. You get stoned or something, and your mind goes, "Oh my God, is is that me? Does somebody think I'm antisocial?" In this case, though, it was just I'm just like something either got lost in translation or she's very confused about who I am. Just can't even imagine why she would even get that idea. So I think it was just some sort of miscommunication. But it got me thinking about, you know, we're in this world of diagnosis, though. Like, we're trying to fit everybody in. We're these armchair clinicians who are just like, oh, they must be this. And I don't really remember that happening in decades past. I don't remember people talking that way growing up. I guess ADHD was the first version of that. You know, not just like the fact that tons of kids were getting diagnosed officially with ADHD when I was a kid, but it was something people would say about anybody who was hyperactive. They'd be like, oh, he he's he totally has ADHD. And then it, you started to see it with OCD, where it's like anybody who's even remotely orderly or particular is like, I have OCD. And uh, a friend of mine thinks I have OCD. I don't know. I might, I might have something like that. I don't, I don't think I have obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm just very ritualistic. Or as my old neighbor said, this college kid, he's like, I notice when you leave your house, like you're not, I don't want to say you're OCD, but you're superstitious. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Like, that's a good observation. Like, I don't really like that you're watching me leave my house, but you're right. Because he could just tell, like, I have, like, my own little rituals I do. Not even rituals, but it's like, if I leave the house, it's almost, like, choreographed, where it's like, I do it at this house now. That was my old house. I do it with this house now, where, like, if I leave the house, it's like I, I, like, swing my keys in my hand or something the same way, and then, like, I lock the door, then I check the handle, and as I'm walking away from the house, I turn and I look. I do it every time. I turn and I look. So I I do the exact same thing every time I leave the house or do anything. And so I guess he was just noticing, you know, I, I liked his words though. He's like, he's like, you know, I notice when you leave your house that he's like, you're not obsessive compulsive. He's not, you're not OCD, but superstitious. And I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. I am superstitious. But I have a friend who like refers to me as OCD. I don't know that that's accurate. I have places where everything should go, but I'm not that clean. I'm not, I wouldn't say it doesn't bother me when something isn't where it belongs. It's just that everything does belong somewhere. And I, it's okay when that changes, but it's just, I don't know. I don't think I have obsessive compulsive disorder at all. I'm just superstitious and ritualistic in my own way. Um, but anyway, like ADHD and OCD, I remember those were the first ones that people started to just throw out there. They started to kind of diagnose other people with those. And since uh, the whole pop psychology thing is blown up and like having worked in that industry, it's, uh, it's just so commonplace. But when I really remember it taking off was one, like the self-diagnosis, like when everybody started self-diagnosing them themselves about 10, 11 years ago. Young women, overwhelmingly young women, started self-diagnosing themselves. I have anxiety. I have depression. Oh, I, I have BPD. I, I have bipolar. I'm bipolar too. I have bipolar too. 
they started doing that for themselves, but then they started doing it to other people, which is funny because the whole idea behind that is like, we need to reduce the stigma, man. We got to talk about these things to reduce the stigma. But in the process, they stigmatize everybody else because they've gotten sucked into that way of thinking that religious, they're religious about contemporary psychology and because they read articles on psychology today or wherever the fuck they go, they end up seeing the entire world through that lens and they try to understand people that way. That stuff's supposed to be a tool. I mean, I agree, like reduce the stigma. Some people do have stuff going on. And the these terms and these treatments and everything we use, you know, those are those can be helpful tools for some people. Basically what it is, it's like noticing patterns in certain types of people and personalities. That's what a mental disorder is. It's like, this is a pattern of behavior that we can see in certain types of people. And so we've developed tools for dealing with that. And by reducing the stigma and talking about it, we can understand people better. It's a tool for understanding people better. Oh, this person has something going on. And I know that and they know that. So I can keep that in mind when I interact with them. That's not what's happened, though. Instead, it's just like the stigma hasn't gone away. Because you can talk about stigma all you want, but it's like that's not going to make dealing with people any easier. And it's led to people like diagnosing everybody. It's like everybody needs a diagnosis. And, uh, you know, I saw this really start to take off. When Trumpsfeld got in office, of course, you started to see a lot of people be like, I don't, what do you think he, do you think he has, he's narcissistic? He's, he's a narcissistic sociopath. Somehow people didn't know what those things were 15 years ago. Somehow like the ideas of narcissism and sociopathy were just totally unknown to the average person. They heard them, but they didn't think about them. And then in the last 10 years, and then it really ramped up around Trumpsfeld 2016, where people started being like, I think that he's a narcissistic sociopath. Do you think that so-and-so is a narcissist? Do you think so-and-so is a narcissist? Do you think he's a sociopath? I think so. It's just people started doing that. They love to diagnose people with narcissism. <laughs> they really do. They really love to throw out that narcissism tag. They love to throw out sociopathy. But uh, it's funny the ones that don't come up, though. And one of those is schizoid personality. I love reading about schizoid. I relate to it heavily. I would never call myself schizoid, but I first read about it when I was like probably 14. And uh, I, I immediately related to it. But I think it's weird. When you relate to something like that, though, it's like you almost want to be it. And you start to embody it. Like some of these people who self-diagnose themselves, I think they start to embody that thing more sometimes because of that self-diagnosis. You know, because some of these criteria for like what qualifies as, as having a certain disorder are very broad. Like it's not hard to see yourself in some of these descriptions. You know, for anything. And, and of course, like, you need to, like, have a certain number of these behavioral patterns and everything. But, 
you know, you can, you, if you want to, which a lot of people do, like if you're reading about personality disorders and mental health issues and you're doing it because like you want to identify with that, all your friends are doing it. The world is telling you that it's like, you will, you will take that on and you will embody it and you will be limited by it. Even if it's accurate, like even if you do have that personality disorder that you think you have, or you were diagnosed with, like that can greatly limit you. You suddenly now have like a ceiling on who you are. And to me, it's like the antithesis of spirituality. It's to me, it goes against spiritual practice and, you know, the idea of like, um, I don't know. I mean, it's to me, it just runs opposite of all that. But I always related to schizoid. I never tell people that because it sounds so severe. And I don't, I'm not a schizoid. And if I am, I'm not going to think of myself that way. And I mean, I don't even know, like most people don't even know what that is. It sounds like schizophrenic and that's what it means. What it means is uh, resembles schizophrenia. But yet it has none of the delusions and hallucinations and unhinged behavior of schizophrenia. It's just that it shares a root. The word shares a root. Beyond that, though, it's really not that close to schizophrenia. Like, maybe it's in the same broad family, but that's about it. And most people don't know what it is. Like, King Crimson had that song, 21st Century Schizoid Man. But beyond that, it's, it's not something you hear about. And what I'm going to do here is, you know, I started out reading. So I'm just going to read more. I'm very critical of Wikipedia. But I've always found that, like, one of Wikipedia's... Wikipedia's strongest areas is psychology. If it's something that plays into politics, you can't trust it. If it's politicized psychology, fuck it. Don't read it. But I think with just general, general like psychological, uh, general personality types and stuff, like I find that it's pretty well sourced. It's. You know, I don't know. I, I just find the Wikipedia, Wikipedia, Wikipedia does okay with that. But schizoid personality. Schizoid personality disorder is a personality disorder characterized by a lack of interest in social relationships, a tendency toward a solitary or sheltered lifestyle, secretiveness, emotional coldness, detachment, and apathy. Affected individuals may be unable to form intimate attachments to others and simultaneously possess a rich and elaborate but exclusively internal fantasy world. Other associated features include stilted speech, a lack of deriving enjoyment from most activities, feeling as though one is an observer rather than a participant in life, an an inability to tolerate emotional expectations of others, apparent indifference when praised or criticized, a degree of asexuality, and idiosyncratic moral or political beliefs. Symptoms typically start in late childhood or or adolescence. So, I mean, that's pretty general right there. I imagine a lot of people would read that and be like, it's me. Oh my God, are they talking about... I didn't know Wikipedia talked about me. I like the idiosyncratic moral or political beliefs part. I'm just going to read a bunch of this. If you don't want to hear me read, turn it off. 
The cause of schizoid personality is uncertain, but there is some evidence of links and shared genetic risk between schizoid, other cluster A personality disorders, such as schizotypal personality disorder and schizophrenia. Thus, schizoid personality is considered to be a schizophrenia-like personality disorder. It is diagnosed by clinical observation, and it can be very difficult to distinguish schizoid from other mental disorders or conditions. The effectiveness of psychotherapeutic and pharmacological treatments for the disorder has yet to be empirically and systematically investigated. This is largely because people with schizoid personality rarely seek treatment for their condition. Originally, low doses of atypical antipsychotics were also used to treat some symptoms of schizoid personality, but their use is no longer recommended. The substituted amphetamine, bupropion, may be used to treat associated anhedonia. However, it is not general practice to treat schizoid with medications, other than for the short-term treatment of acute co-occurring disorders, for example, depression. For example, depression. Talk therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy may not be effective because people with schizoid personality may have a hard time forming a good working relationship with a therapist. Yeah, why would you? Who is this person? Who the fuck is this person? Schizoid personality is a poorly studied disorder, and there is little clinical data on schizoid personality because it is rarely encountered in clinical settings. Studies have generally reported a prevalence of less than 1%. So less than 1% of all uh, clinical patients have schizoid personality. It is more commonly diagnosed in males than in females. Schizoid personality is linked to negative outcomes, including a significantly compromised quality of life, reduced overall functioning even after 15 years, and one of the lowest levels of life success of all personality disorders measured as status, wealth, and successful relationships. Bullying is particularly common towards schizoid individuals. Suicide may be a running mental theme for schizoid individuals, though they are not likely to actually attempt it. Some symptoms of schizoid personality, for example, solitary lifestyle, emotional detachment, loneliness, and impaired communication, however, have been stated as general risk factors for serious suicidal behavior. Signs and symptoms. People with schizoid personality are often aloof, cold, and indifferent, which causes interpersonal difficulty. Most individuals diagnosed with schizoid personality have trouble establishing personal relationships or expressing their feelings meaningfully. They may remain passive in the face of unfavorable situations. Their communication with other people may be indifferent and terse at times. Schizoid personality types often lack the ability to assess the impact of their own actions in social situations. A person with schizoid personality may feel suffocated when their personal space is violated and take actions to avoid this feeling. People who have schizoid personality tend to be happiest when in relationships in which their partner places few emotional or intimate demands on them and does not expect phatic or social niceties. It is not necessarily people they want to avoid, but negative or positive emotional expectations. Emotional intimacy and self-disclosure. I kind of worded that poorly. It is not necessarily people they want to avoid, but negative or positive emotional expectations. Emotional intimacy and self-disclosure. 
Sounds very Buddhist to me. Sounds very Buddhist. Sounds like a Buddhist mentality. Wanting to avoid both negative or positive emotional expectations. Sounds great. Just beautiful neutrality right there. Therefore, it is possible for individuals with schizoid personality to form relationships with others based on intellectual, physical, familial, occupational, or recreational activities, as long as there is no need for emotional intimacy. Again, that sounds great. Forming relationships based on intellectual, physical, familial, occupational, or recreational activities. like that, Isn't that what you're supposed to base relationships on? This basically sounds like not being a woman, you know? That's kind of what it sounds like. Like, men tend to form uh, close relationships. This is me talking, but men, men tend to form close relationships based on their interests and hobbies and things. And not so much on emotional intimacy. So it's just funny they point that out. Donald Winnicott explains this is because schizoid individuals prefer to make relationships on their own terms and not in terms of the impulses of other people. Failing to attain that, they prefer isolation. In general, friendship among schizoids is usually limited to one person, often also schizoid, forming what has been called a union of two eccentrics. <laughs> Within it, the ecstatic cult of personality. Outside it, everything is sharply rejected and despised. I love it. <laughs> Finding another schizoid. <laughs> Schizoids tend to only form close friendships with like one other schizoid. And it's been called a union of two eccentrics. And within it, the ecstatic cult of personality. Outside it, everything is sharply rejected and despised. That, that describes every single relationship I have. No matter who they are. You know, I, 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 have, I somehow have, you know, a number of friends. But I feel like we all operate that way. Like within our friendship, it's like an ecstatic cult of eccentric personality, and we hate everything else except for that. This sounds like it sounds normal to me. Although there is the belief that with schizoid, uh, although there is the belief people with schizoid personality are complacent and unaware of their feelings, many recognize their differences from others. Some individuals with schizoid personality who are in treatment say life passes them by or they feel like living inside a shell. They see themselves as missing the bus and speak of observing life from a distance. Aaron Beck and his colleagues report that people with schizoid personality seem comfortable with their aloof lifestyle. And they seem comfortable with their aloof lifestyle and consider themselves observers rather than participants in the world around them. But they also mention that many of their schizoid patients recognize themselves as socially deviant or even defective when confronted with the different lives of ordinary people, especially when they read books or see movies focusing on relationships. Even when schizoid individuals may not long for closeness, they, they can become weary of being on the outside looking in. These feelings may lead to depression or depersonalization. If they do, schizoid people often experience feeling like a robot or going through life in a dream. According to Guntrip, Klein, and others, people with schizoid personality may possess a hidden sense of superiority and lack dependence on other people's opinions. There you go. Hey, sounds great. I, I, I get that. Hey, buddy, you're horking. You're horking, boy. You all right, buddy? You're horking. Doing this horking. Chihuahuas do their horking. Um... 
I'm going to go back. I'm going to reread that just to get back. According to Guntrip, Klein, and others, people with schizoid personality may possess a hidden sense of superiority and lack dependence on other people's opinions. This is very different from the grandiosity seen in narcissistic personality disorder, which is described as burdened with envy and with a desire to destroy or put down others. Additionally, schizoids do not go out of their way to achieve social validation. Unlike the narcissist, the schizoid will often keep their creations private to avoid unwelcome attention or the feeling that their ideas and thoughts are being appropriated by the public. <laughs> I relate to that. I, I, don't cre- I don't keep creations private to avoid attention so much. A little bit, I guess, but I totally understand that paranoia of being like, you're, you're taking my idea. All my friends feel that way. Everybody I like. Everybody I like is really paranoid of people stealing their ideas, even like non-creative ideas, just thoughts. The related schizotypal personality disorder and schizophrenia are reported to have ties to creative thinking, and it is speculated that the internal fantasy aspect of schizoid personality may also be reflective of this thinking. Alternatively, there has been an especially large contribution of people with schizoid symptoms to science and theoretical areas of knowledge, including maths, physics, economics, etc. At the same time, people with schizoid personality are helpless at many practical activities because of their symptoms. Now we're getting into the good stuff. Secret schizoids. Many schizoid individuals display an engaging, interactive personality. Contradicting the observable characteristics emphasized by the DSM-5 and ICD-10 definitions of schizoid personality. Guntrip classifies these individuals as secret schizoids who behave with socially available, interested, engaged, and involved interaction, yet remain emotionally withdrawn and sequestered within the safety of the internal world. Klein distinguishes between a classic schizoid and a secret schizoid, which occur just as often as each other. Klein cautions, one should not misidentify the schizoid person as a result of the patient's defensive, compensatory interaction with the external world. He suggests one ask the person what their subjective experience is to to detect the presence of the schizoid refusal of emotional intimacy and preference for objective fact. Frequently, a schizoid individual's social functioning improves, sometimes dramatically, when the individual knows they are an, an, when they are an anonymous participant in a real-time conversation or correspondence, for example, in an online chat room or message board. It is often the case the individual's online correspondent will report nothing amiss in the individual's engagement and affect. A 2013 study looking at personality disorders and internet use found that being online more hours per day predicted signs of schizoid personality. Additionally, schizoid personality correlated with lower phone call use and fewer Facebook friends. Well, if I'm if I'm like viewing this through my own lens, I'm fucking on the phone every day. I have a phone call every night with somebody. I love the phone. And then I stay up all night talking to myself and into my phone. So if schizoids correlated with lower phone call use, I I guess I'm not it. Fewer Facebook friends. Descriptions of the schizoid personality as hidden behind an outward appearance of emotional engagement have been recognized since 1940, 
with Fairbairns' description of schizoid exhibitionism, in which the schizoid individual is able to express a great deal of feeling and to make what appear to be impressive social contacts, yet in reality gives nothing and loses nothing. Because they are playing a part, their personality is not involved. According to Fairbairn, the person disowns the part they are playing, and the schizoid individual seeks to preserve their personality intact and immune from compromise. The schizoid's false persona is based around what those around them define as normal or good behavior, as a form of compliance. Further references to the, the secret schizoid come from Masood Khan, Jeffrey Seinfeld, and Philip Manfield, who give a description of, an, of a schizoid individual who enjoys public speaking engagements, but experiences great difficulty in the breaks when audience members would attempt to engage him emotionally. These references expose the problems in relying on outer obser observable behavior for assessing the presence of personality disorders in certain individuals. <laughs> that part's funny though, like where it's, you know, schizoid exhibitionism, they say, means expressing a great deal of feeling and, you know, being very socially en engaged, but in reality giving nothing and losing nothing because they're playing a part, as it says. I always talk about that on here. I always, you know, that's what Eastern spirituality teaches you, that you're just playing these various parts and you don't need to invest in those. And, you know, this shows up in Norse mythology. Like that's what Odin does. You know, Odin plays these various parts and he inhabits them while he's playing them, but they're not him. I mean, this sort of idea is, is ancient, People try to teach it to people because it has such value. You know, schizoid or no schizoid, it's like the idea of playing a part and not compromising your true self as a result. How could that possibly be an issue? How could that possibly be seen as, as a disorder? Schizoid fantasy. A pathological reliance on fantasizing and preoccupation with inner experience is often the part of the schizoid withdrawal from the world. Fantasy thus becomes a core component of the self in exile, though fantasizing in schizoid individuals is far more complicated than a means of facilitating withdrawal. Fantasy is also a relationship with the world and with others by proxy. It is a substitute relationship but a relationship nonetheless, characterized by idealized, defensive, and compensatory mechanisms. This is self-contained and free from the dangers and anxieties associated with emotional connection to real persons and situations. Klein explains it as an expression of the self struggling to connect to objects, albeit internal objects. Fantasy permits schizoid patients to feel connected and yet still free from the imprisonment in relationships. In short, in fantasy, one can be attached to internal objects and still be free. This aspect of schizoid pathology has been generously elaborated in works by R.D. Lang, Donald Winken, these, these authors. Um, it's just funny to me, though. It's like, basically, it's stoicism. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm reading here. Like, it's like, basically they're saying like a schizoid can be very socially engaging or very, very cut off and, and quiet. And basically the, the only common factor in everything I've read so far is basically that schizoids don't want to get emotionally sucked in and they don't want to have other people's emotions thrown at them 
it's just kind of funny. It's like that's basically the, the only common factor so far. Like other than that, it's like basically you have an internal fantasy world. You have an internal sense of self that you don't want to have compromised by anybody or anything else. I call that the spirit or the soul. I mean, the reason why I play a role, the reason like why when I interact with people that I don't really connect with and, you know, working a job or any kind of thing you have to do, the reason why I don't, the reason why I see it as simply playing a part is because to do otherwise compromises your soul. It's not my, it's not an internal fantasy. It's like, I don't want to taint my soul by thinking that that's me. You know, that's how I feel about it. I don't want to get my soul twisted up on something that's not real. But that's what people do all day, every day. That's most of what people do. Sexuality. I like the sexual stuff with this. Sexuality. People with schizoid personality are sometimes sexually apathetic, though they do not typically experience anorgasmia, which I, I assume that means you can still have orgasms. It's just you're sexually apathetic. Their preference to remain alone and detached may cause their need for sex to appear to be less than that of those who do not have schizoid personality. Sex often causes individuals with schizoid to feel that their personal space is being violated, and they commonly feel that masturbation or sexual abstinence is preferable to the emotional closeness they must tolerate when having sex. Significantly broadening this picture are notable exceptions of schizoid individuals who engage, engage in occasional or even frequent sexual activities with others. Fairbarn notes that schizoids can fear that in a relationship, their needs will weaken and exhaust their partner, so they feel forced to disown them and move to satisfy solely the needs of their partner. The net result of this is a loss of dignity and sense of self within any relationship they enter eventually leading to intolerable frustration and friction. Appel notes that these fears result in the schizoid's negativism, stubbornness, and reluctance to love. Thus, a central conflict of the schizoid is between an immense longing for relationships, but a deep anxiety and avoidance of relationships, manifested by the choosing of the lesser evil of abandoning others. Individuals with schizoid individuals with schizoid personality have long been noted to have an increased rate of unconventional sexual tendencies, though if present, these are rarely acted upon. The schizoid is often labeled asexual or presents with a lack of sexual identity. Kernberg states that this apparent lack of sexuality does not represent a lack of sexual definition, but rather a combination of several strong fixations to cope with the same conflicts. People with schizoid personality are often able to pursue any fantasies with content on the internet while remaining completely unengaged with the outside world. Let's see here. Do I need to read this? Akhtar's profile. American psychoanalyst Salman Akhtar. Salman Akhtar. Oh, well, if it isn't Salman Akhtar. Provided a comprehensive phenomenological profile of schizoid personality in which classic and contemporary descriptive views are synthesized with psychoanalytic observations. This profile is summarized in the table reproduced below that lists clinical features that involve six areas of psychosocial functioning and are organized by overt and covert manifestations. 
I really like this part. I'll get to it in a second. Overt and covert are intended to denote seemingly contradictory aspects that may both simultaneously be present in an, in an individual. These designations do not necessarily imply their conscious or unconscious existence. The covert characteristics are by definition difficult to discern and not immediately apparent. Additionally, the lack of data on the frequency of many of the features makes their relative diagnostic weight difficult to distinguish at this time. And just as a side note, they basically have no data on schizoid personality. Like they really don't. Like I, like I as mentioned earlier, like 1%, less than 1% of all clinical patients have schizoid and schizoids are extremely uncooperative when in terms of like mental health treatment, they don't seek it. And when they do get it, basically nothing, there's no treatment for it. There's literally no treatment for it. And I'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, However, Akhtar states that his profile has several advantages over the DSM in terms of maintaining historical continuity of the use of the word schizoid, valuing depth and complexity over descriptive oversimplification, and helping provide a more meaningful differential diagnosis of schizoid personality from other, from other personality disorders. So this is the list of overt and covert characteristics. In the area of self-concept, the overt characteristics are compliant, stoic, non-competitive, self-sufficient, lacking assertiveness, feeling inferior and an outsider in life. The covert characteristics of self-concept are cynical, inauthentic, depersonalized, alternately feeling empty, robot-like, and full of omnipotent, vengeful fantasies, <laughs> as well as hidden grandiosity. I can say for myself, I've never had omnipotent, vengeful fantasies. I could see, though, I mean, because it mentioned earlier, some people with schizoid, you know, they've been bullied and things like that. I can see if you, if you grew up in the wrong environment and you had this personality type, I can see where you'd be vengeful. I mean, I, I don't consider myself this, but it's, the, it's literally the only personality type, quote unquote, disorder that I've ever related to. I don't, I don't consider myself this, but... Uh, it's just the only one that's ever kind of, you know, that, that, that's caught my interest. Um, the hidden grandiosity, though, I have a lot of that. All of my grandiosity is, uh, I keep it pretty well hidden, but it's definitely there. But anyway, uh, the next area is interpersonal relations. The overt characteristics are withdrawn, aloof, have few close friends, impervious to others' emotions, and afraid of intimacy. The covert side of that is exquisitely sensitive, deeply curious about others, hungry for love, envious of others' spontaneity, intensely needy of involvement with others, and capable of excitement with carefully selected intimates. For social adaptation, the overt characteristics are prefer solitary occupational and recreational activities, marginal or eclectically sociable in groups, Vulnerable to esoteric movements owing to a strong need to belong, and tends to be lazy and indolent. The covert side of that is lack clarity of goals, weak ethnic affiliation, usually capable of steady work, quite creative and may make unique and original contributions, 
and capable of passionate endurance in certain spheres of interest. Love and sexuality, overt, asexual, sometimes celibate, free of romantic interests, averse to sexual gossip and innuendo. The covert side of that is secret voyeuristic interests, vulnerable to erotomania, and tendency toward compulsive perversions. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, secret voyeuristic interests. I have to say, like, my interests are very voyeuristic. I mean, I, I, anytime I talk about sex on here, I'm always like, my favorite thing in the world is just the sight of a woman in public, fully clothed, well-fitting clothes. I don't care what she's wearing. I'm not into fashion. Clothes that fit her proportions well, that are just revealing enough. I'm not a voyeur in the sense, like, I... I I would never, I, I'm not a peeping Tom or anything like that, but I, I do tend to prefer the sight of a woman, you know, over, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just tend to, I don't know. That's just what I prefer. But, uh, ethics, standards, and ideals, idiosyncratic moral and political beliefs. I don't have any of those. Tendency towards spiritual, mystical, and parapsychological interests. Again, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's the overt side. <laughs> Idiosyncratic, moral, and political beliefs. Tendency toward spiritual, mystical, and parapsychological interests. You know, it, this is so dehumanizing because it's like to categorize people based on this as, as if this is a symptom of something. Having idiosyncratic, moral, or political beliefs is a symptom Having a tendency towards spiritual, mystical, and parapsychological interests is a symptom. Like, just to view the world in that way, that these are symptoms, these are potential problems, is so funny to me. The covert side of that is moral unevenness, and schizoids can be occasionally strikingly amoral and vulnerable to odd crimes, while at other times they are altruistically self-sacrificing. What are odd crimes? Vulnerable to odd crimes. I'm trying to think of what that would be. What does that mean to be vulnerable to odd crimes? There's a lot of weird crimes, but I'm just wondering what that would mean in this context. They don't give examples. Cognitive style. The overt side is absent-minded, engrossed in fantasy, vague and stilted speech, alternations between eloquence and inarticulateness. Well, that last one, I can tell you, that's me. The other side, the, the covert side is autistic thinking, fluctuations between sharp contact with external reality and hyper-reflectiveness about the self, and autocentric use of language. I need to remind myself what autocentric, and use my lifeline here. What is autocentric? I think I know what it means, but I, I just want to make sure I know in case, uh, fuck. one-handed lifeline right here. Um, centered in or upon the self. Making or regarding oneself as the center. Well, yeah, that, hell yeah, that's me. All every all I talk about is myself. What is autistic thinking anyway? Because that's one of those ones. Autism is one of those ones that everybody diagnoses themselves with these days. I see so many people in the last five years who are like, "Well, I'm kind of autistic." It's like, why? Like, what makes you autistic? 
like when I've met autistic people and I've known people all over the, the so-called spectrum, as the comedian Mark Norman said, you know, we're all on the spectrum. That's why it's called a fucking spectrum. <laughs> you know, like, like everybody's on the spectrum. That's why it's called that. But let's see what, the, here's the definition of autistic thinking. Autistic thinking refers to a cognitive progress, uh, a cognitive progress. I wonder if they mean process that is not in accordance with consensus reality, but rather emphasizes preoccupation with inner experiences and needs. More generally, it means thinking that is driven by internally oriented wishes and desires, regardless of external factors. Is everybody fucking autistic? That sounds, that sounds like every fucking person in the world. I don't know. I've never related to autism at all. I actually have an extremely difficult time communicating with autistic people. Some people are good at it. Like I have a friend who uh, has like her, her boyfriend's kid is autistic and she's amazing with him. And her brother's autistic too. He, he, and I know him. He's he's actually on this. He's definitely got Asperger's. And I get along with him, but I have an extremely difficult time communicating with him. There's kind of like a rigidity. He's very rigid. So I don't know. I, don't, I never relate to that. You know, I, I never relate to the autistic thing. But uh, causes. Some evidence suggests the. Cl- uh, I'm not going to look. Who cares about that? I don't know. I don't want to keep reading for this whole time, but that overt and covert thing I like. Yeah, this there's just like a bunch of crap here. Um, very little data exists for rates of substance abuse disorder among people with schizoid personality, but existing studies suggest they are less likely to have substance abuse problems than the, than the general population. One study found that significantly fewer boys with schizoid personality had alcohol problems than a control group of non-schizoids. Another study evaluating personality disorder profiles in substance abusers found that substance abusers who showed schizoid symptoms were more likely to abuse one substance rather than many, in contrast to other personality disorders such as borderline, antisocial, or histrionic, which were more likely to abuse many. American psychotherapist Sharon Eckleberry, hey, it's Sharon Eckleberry, states that the impoverished social connections experienced by people with schizoid personality limit their exposure to the drug culture and that they have limited inclination to learn how to do illegal drugs. Teach me how to do this illegal drug. Describing them as highly resistant to influence. She additionally states that even if they could access illegal drugs, they would be disinclined to use them in public or social settings. And because they would be more likely to use alcohol or cannabis alone than for social disinhibition, they would not be particularly vulnerable to negative consequences in early use. I mean, I, I love drugs and alcohol. You know, I, I, had to, I had to get away from it. I mean, aside from weed, I've never consistently used any other drug. Try to many. I've, I've taken many drugs, but uh, I don't know. It's just funny. It, it is funny though. I mean, because I, I, of course, I, I prefer to do things alone. I prefer to use drugs by myself, but only because I can do what I want with them. I like to have total. Like when I'm on a drug, I like to have total control over my situation. Drinking was a little different, you know. 
drinking for me was both. I don't know. I don't really relate to this description of substance abuse. I don't, I don't think I'm a schizoid substance. You know, if, if we're judging schizoid personality through substance abuse, I just don't, I don't really relate to this, except for the part about like preferring to use them alone. Cause I mean, like it was saying like significantly fewer schizoids have problems with drugs and alcohol. I love drugs and alcohol, you know, even though I don't drink anymore and all that, like I, I loved them. Suicide. Suicide may be a running theme for schizoid individuals, in part due to the knowledge of the large-scale ostracism, ostracism that would result in their idiosyncratic views. Oh, this, this is great. i got to reread this. I can't stutter over my words on this one. Suicide may be a running theme for schizoid individuals, in part due to the knowledge of the large-scale ostracism that would result if their idiosyncratic views were revealed and their experience that most, if not all, people are, unrelata are unrelatable or have polar opposite reactions to them on societally sensitive issues though they are not likely to actually attempt it. So, so it's saying that schizoid people feel suicidal because they're terrified that their idiosyncratic views are going to get revealed and people are going to find out that they experience societally sensitive issues in a much different way. <laughs> so it makes them suicidal. <laughs> I relate, you know, I got to say, I relate, not necessarily to the suicidal aspect, but of the concern they might be down and depressed when all possible connections have been cut off, but as long as there is some relationship or even hope for one, the risk will be low. The idea of suicide is a driving force against the person's schizoid defenses. Often among people with schizoid personality, there is a rationally grounded and reasoned position on why they want to die, and this suicidal construct takes a stable position in the mind. A mini-review indicates that schizoid or schizoid traits are a major risk factor for both serious suicide attempts and completed suicide. Schizoids tend to hide their suicidal thoughts and intentions. Demonstrative suicides or suicidal blackmail, as seen in Cluster B personality disorders such as borderline, histrionic, or antisocial, are extremely rare among schizoid individuals. So it's basically saying, like, schizoids don't use suicide to manipulate other people. As in, as in other clinical mental health settings among suicidal inpatients, individuals with schizoid personality are not as well represented as some other groups. A 2011 study on suicidal inpatients at a Moscow hospital found that schizoids were the least common patients, while those with cluster B personality disorders were the most common. Cluster B is, just fills the system, you know. Um, several studies have reported an overlap or comorbidity with the autism spectrum disorder, Asperger syndrome. Eh, this isn't even interesting. Um, yeah, basically just saying there's comorbidity. I mean, you can see where these things would lend themselves to each other. Even though the, what's being described is clearly not autism, you can see where those two things would kind of bleed into each other. There's kind of a probably a blurry line between them. Not really that interesting. I'm really uninterested in autism. I don't know why that is. I mean, it's interesting that all these people are being diagnosed with it. I guess it just seems really obvious to me. Like the autistic people I've known, 
like I kind of understand what their deal is right away. I can pick up on it right away and I'm just kind of like, oh, I get it. But it's not something that really interests me at all. I don't know. I don't know why that is because people seem to be obsessed with it these days. Um, antisocial conduct. Here we go. Full circle back to me getting called antisocial. Another study looked at rates of antisocial conduct in boys with either schizoid personality or Asperger's syndrome compared with a control group of non-schizoid individuals and found the incidence of antisocial conduct to be the same in both groups. However, the schizoid boys stole significantly less. That's interesting. So in a, in a study of schizoid and non-schizoid individuals, antisocial conduct was basically identical between them. But the schizoid boys stole significantly less. So schizoids aren't thieves. You can trust a schizoid with your shit. You can trust a schizoid with your shit. Good song. I've had, I've had a desire to sing on here a lot more. I'm holding back. You can trust a schizoid with your shit. Upon follow-up in adulthood, and I know that's just awful and grating for me to do that. Um, upon follow-up in adulthood, out of a matched group of 19 boys with schizoid and 19 boys without, four of the schizoid boys reported having exclusively internal violent fantasies. They were concerned with Zulu wars, abattoirs, fascists, and communists, as well as a collection of knives, which were pursued entirely by themselves while the only non-schizoid subject to report a violent fantasy life shared his with a group of young men where they dressed up and rode motorcycles as a self-styled panzer group. <laughs> what the f <laughs> let me just Let me just go back to that, because saying like, like four of the schizoid boys out of 19 had what, what are referred to here as exclusively internal violent fantasies but these, these internal violent fantasies revolved around Zulu wars, abattoirs, which are slaughterhouses, fascists, and communists, as well as knives. Zulus in Africa. Like, so they consider, like, fantasizing about Zulu wars to be an internal violent fantasy. Like, who the fuck? Like, <laughs> how do you even, how do you even, uh, how do you even deal with that? Like they found that one of these schizoid boys was obsessed with Zulu wars and they consider that an internal violent fantasy. It doesn't sound like an internal violent fantasy. It just sounds like he's got some weird obsession with African warfare and abattoirs, slaughterhouses. Like it's such a weirdly specific thing to be interested in. And I like how the non-schizoid boy who had a violent fantasy, it involved him being part of a motorcycle gang that was referred to as a panzer group, which, you know, of course, are the Nazi tanks. An absent parent or socioeconomic disadvantage did not seem to affect the risk of antisocial conduct in schizoid individuals as much as it did non-schizoid individuals. Absent parents and parental socioeconomic disadvantage were also less common in the schizoid group. So basically that whole thing is saying like schizoids are non-criminal. They don't steal even in a single parent household or in poverty, they're far less likely to become antisocial, which is really interesting. 
I find that fascinating that schizoids are less likely to become antisocial in situations that make otherwise normal people antisocial. In the true definition of that, you know, antisocial being like criminal. Controversy. This is a good part. Controversy. The original concept of the schizoid character developed by Ernst Kreschmer in the 1920s comprised an amalgamation of avoidant schizotypal and schizoid traits. It was not until 1980 and the work of Theodore Millen that led to splitting this concept into three personality disorders, now schizoid, schizotypal, and avoidant. This caused debate about whether this was accurate or if these traits were different expressions of a single personality disorder. It has also been argued due to the poor consistency and efficiency of diagnosis due to overlapping traits that schizoid personality should be removed altogether from the DSM. A 2012 article suggested that two different disorders may better represent schizoid. One affect-constricted disorder, belonging to schizotypal PD, and a seclusive disorder, belonging to avoidant PD. They called for the replacement of the schizoid category from future editions of the DSM by a dimensional model that would allow for the description of schizoid traits on an individual basis. Some critics, such as Nancy McWilliams of Rutgers University, oh, Nancy McWilliams of Rutgers University, and the blah, blah, blah. So basically, these people argue that the definition of schizoid personality is flawed due to cultural bias and that it does not constitute a mental disorder, but simply an avoidant attachment style requiring more distant emotional proximity. I agree 100%. I mean, basically what they're describing are Scandinavians. Like, I mean, many of the things described here do apply to me, not all of them. Many of them do. They also apply to my dad, my grandpa. They apply to Scandinavians. I mean, they, it applies to a bunch of Asians. Well, you know, there's there's obvious, there's there's a lot in here too. Like it runs, and now you know it, it runs up against like Stoicism, Buddhism. You know, it's it's just interesting that like there's a definite cultural bias to this. If that is true, then many of the more problematic reactions these individuals show in social situations may be partly accounted for by the judgments commonly imposed on people with this style. However, impairment is mandatory for any behavior to be diagnosed as a personality disorder. Schizoid seems to satisfy this criterion because it is linked to negative outcomes. These include a significantly compromised quality of life, reduced overall functioning even after 15 years, and one of the lowest levels of life success of all personality disorders. However, determination of what qualify as impairments or as negative outcomes is itself potentially subject to cultural bias. People with schizoid personality may not regard a lack of social status or successful relationships, for example, as harm. Furthermore, correlation with negative outcomes does not necessarily demonstrate that these outcomes were directly caused by the schizoidal traits. Rather, it may be that these outcomes are the result of discrimination against people with schizoid personality who may be viewed as abnormal. I think there's a solid argument there. And I, I've read quite a bit about this. I mean, it's it's actually quite controversial. Like, there, there are many people who argue that schizoid 
personality is not a disorder. It's simply a, a type of personality. And the fact that very few schizoid people try to get treatment. I mean, that's actually the next section here, so I'll go into that. Uh, treatment. People with schizoid personality rarely seek treatment for their condition. This issue is found in many personality disorders, which prevents many people with these conditions from seeking treatment. They tend to view their condition as not conflicting with their self-image and their abnormal perceptions and behaviors as rational and appropriate. There is little data on the effectiveness of various treatments on this personality disorder because it is seldom seen in clinical settings. However, those in treatment have the option of medication and psychotherapy. So basically, schizoids, they never get help. They have no problem with their self-image. Their idiosyncratic views and beliefs are considered rational and appropriate to them. So, they, And they have no data on them. They have no. They have, they have barely any information because there's been such little clinical research. Schizoids are so unwilling to get involved in all that. Medication. No medications are indicated for for directly treating schizoid personality, but certain medications may reduce the symptoms of schizoid personality, as well as treat co-occurring mental disorders. The symptoms of schizoid personality mirror the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, such as anhedonia, blunted affect, and low energy, and schizoid personality is thought to be part of the schizophrenic spectrum of disorders, which also includes the schizotypal and paranoid personality disorders, and may benefit from the medications indicated for schizophrenia. Originally, low doses of atypical antipsychotics, like risperidone, and olanzapine were used to alleviate social deficits and blunted affect. However, a 2012 review concluded that atypical antipsychotics were ineffective for treating personality disorders. In contrast, the substituted amphetamine, blah, 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 that's not even interesting. Um, psychotherapy. Despite the relative emotional comfort Psychoanalytic therapy of schizoid individuals takes a long time and causes many difficulties. Schizoids are generally poorly involved in psychotherapy due to difficulties in establishing empathic relations with a psychotherapist and low motivation for treatment. It makes sense to me. I mean, basically, a therapist is a prostitute for your emotions. That's how I see it. Doesn't it's not a bad thing. Some people need that. Some people need a prostitute. Some people, you know, some horny dudes need a, a, a real prostitute. Some people need a prostitute for their mind. Nothing wrong with it. But I mean, that's the reality of it. But anyway, supportive psychotherapy is used in an inpatient or outpatient setting by a trained professional that focuses on areas such as coping skills, improvement of social skills and social interactions, communication and self-esteem issues. People with schizoid personality may also have a perceptual tendency to miss subtle differences in expression. That causes an inability to pick up hints from the environment because social cues from others that might normally provoke an emotional response are not perceived. That in turn limits their emotional experience. The perception the perception of varied events only increases their fear for intimacy and limits them in their interpersonal relationships. Their aloofness may limit their opportunities to refine the social skills and behavior necessary to effectively pursue relationships. 
it's not one I relate to because I feel like I notice every little expression somebody makes. I notice every little nuance. I can look in someone's eyes, I feel like, and know what they're feeling and thinking. Besides psychodynamic therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy can be used, but because CBT generally begins with identifying the automatic thoughts, whatever those are, one should be aware of the potential hazards that can happen when working with schizoid patients. People with, with schizoid personality seem to be distinguished from those with other personality disorders in that they often report having few or no automatic thoughts at all. That poverty of thought may have to do with their apathetic lifestyle. But another possible explanation could be the paucity of emotion many schizoids display, which would influence their thought patterns as well. Um, socialization groups may help people with schizoid personality. Educational strategies in which people who have SPD identify their positive and negative emotions also... Uh, I'm losing track of this. I don't want to just keep reading stuff just about treatment. Ba basically, it's like they have no idea how to treat this. It's a controversy whether or not it's an actual disorder because it, it you know, it's, it's hard to even, there's, there's such little data on it and schizoids are so uncooperative in clinical settings and just unwilling to even go to them. Um, schizoid is uncommon in clinical settings. Blah, blah, blah. Um, just going to scroll through here, see if there's anything even remotely interested Here's like a 1925 description when Ernst Kretschmer was first observing these personality uh, characteristics. Unsociability, quietness, reservedness, seriousness, and eccentricity. Timidity, shyness with feelings, sensitivity, nervousness, excitability, fondness of nature and books. Pliability, kindliness, honesty, indifference, silence, and cold emotional attitudes. You know, these people just have too much time on their hands. Like what they just described there, it's like, this is basically a stoic person who doesn't want to get sucked into other people's emotional bullshit, but who's an otherwise decent law-abiding person who treats people okay. It's just so funny. Like, it's like we have to categorize things. That's about it. I'm not going to, there's nothing really more for me to read. It's just interesting because, I mean, it's the only personality. I've read about all the personality types. I've read them all. I read it. You know, I read them all. No, but I've read about, you know, many personality types. I, I worked, hey, buddy. I worked in that industry. And, uh, you know, it's the only one that, like, I found the most relatable. But that said, there were a million things in there I don't relate to. And people are aware that I'm weird, you know, I mean, obviously. And I don't say that like a badge of honor, but it's like, I, I've always gotten, like, the responses I've gotten from certain people, it's like, they always realize that they're up against a wall. Certain people, not everybody, but people who I don't want to really get involved with. Like, they realize that I'm friendly, I can be engaging, but it's like, there's a point that you just can't get past. And it's just, it's, it's not something I do consciously. It's just, it's there. But that, and, and all that shit I just read, if you're even still listening, uh, there were a million things in there that are totally unrelatable to me. There are a bunch that were. 
and uh, it, it's such a, an undiscovered territory, and I don't even know that it deserves categorization. It just seems like, like a, a certain personality type and nothing more. And like, as it said, like really the, the only negative outcomes is schizoids tend to disconnect from people and that can lead to, that can lead to loneliness and self-destructive thoughts and just a general feeling of alienation. But beyond that, it's like there's, there's not really anything behaviorally that disrupts a schizoid's person's life, nor does it disrupt anybody else's life. I mean, I remember I, I met this kid my first year of college, kind of like an indie rock, a twee indie rock dude. We just happened to sit next to each other in class, and like him and this girl would talk to me. And we worked together on like a project and he was a really nice kid. Like he, he, he was just, he really wanted to be my friend and I, I was nice to him and everything, but I didn't want to do anything with him. Like I just knew that he wasn't my kind of person. Like years later, this girl I dated for two years, it turned out he was her first boyfriend way back in high school or something. So it was weird. I, like finding that out was weird because I'm just like, wow, that was your first boyfriend. I knew that guy. But he was always trying to get me to do things and engaging me. But it just, I have nothing bad to say about the kid. But uh, I just knew that he and I probably weren't going to, you know, there was nothing, just, he wasn't my, my kind of person. But I remember at one point in class, he said something to me and I just didn't have much to give him in response. And he was like, you know what, Eric, you're a tough nut to crack. And I'm like, isn't, isn't that like, everything in a nutshell right there no pun intended like that you would even think that about me is exactly why we're probably not going to be best friends you know so i mean i've gotten shit like that my whole life i don't i don't want to get into a whole like life story thing here but it's like i don't know like people are always looking for emotional engagement you know, people are looking for that. And not everybody gives you that. I'm an emotional person, but it's it's not something that I, I just readily connect with people on. I have no problem being candid with my emotions. I have no problem crying in front of people. I have no problem expressing like very deep personal emotional thoughts if it feels relevant. But it usually doesn't. And the entire male side of my family, except, except for maybe one uncle... The entire male side of my family is that way. And it wasn't taught. It wasn't like, you should be this way. I mean, I didn't even grow up in the same house as my dad. But we all operate that way. We all kind of have that personality. And like reading through this too, I'm like, this is just describing a Capricorn. <laughs> you know, it, this is just astrology. Like, you know, astrology is one of those things where like, I, I wholly identify with the traits of, of Capricorns. And it's funny that like we're willing to accept all of these diagnoses like, oh, you have this personality type, blah, blah, blah. Like you're this type of person. It's basically an archetype. That's all these are. It's like personality archetypes. There's these certain types of people and some of their behavior works. Some of it doesn't. We're all fallen. Every single person has problems. Every single person's personality has upsides and downsides. It has, it has things that make their life easier and things that make their life worse. 
Everyone's personality has things that make other people's lives easier and things that make their lives worse too. Some people have severe disorders. I mean, like cluster B mentioned in there. Cluster B is a real problem to be around. Like I can't be around cluster B. But other personalities, just like there's upsides and downsides to it. We're all fallen. We're all imperfect. But we categorize these things and we take these seriously. Like people read about these terms and they're like, this is a real thing that's totally measurable and consistent all the time. And, you know, maybe sometimes, but on the whole, it's like we have this faith in it. And some people will dismiss something like astrology, which I just have fun with. I don't believe or not believe in astrology. I just think it's kind of fun. And when I've met people who are really into it, they're able to tell me things that even though I'm a defiant person, like when someone tries to tell me what my personality is like, they're almost always wrong and that offends me. But when people like get all my information, like I had a, there was a woman I met who was a professional astrologer a few years ago and she collected all my information. She did, she did it for free and like wrote me a report and she, uh, it was so eerily accurate because like she took down all the information, everything you need, like where you were born, what time, whatever. I don't, I don't know what all they use. But the report she wrote me, it was, it was truly like, and I didn't know her very well, but it, it was truly as if she knew me. It was so eerily accurate. And I'm someone who will reject that if it's not accurate. I'm not looking to be you know, the ultimate Capricorn with a Leo rising. I don't think about life that way. But, you know, I take astrology as seriously as I do, you know, clinical psychology. They're equally real to me. Maybe astrology is even a little more real because it's cosmic. I like the cosmic things a little more than I like the clinical, a lot more. But we do this with people like we, you know, no matter what time we live in, like we have these ways of categorizing people, but we've reached a point through the sciences and through psychology where it's like, it's hyper categorization where it's like, we want to be able to define everybody. We want to be able to say what everybody is. There's no normal. And we know there's no normal. I agree. There's no normal. But because we know there's no normal, we want to be able to diagnose everybody with something. When I think it's far better, like unless somebody has a real troubling disorder that needs treatment, that needs these tools, which often do work. You know, I know a second ago I was saying therapists are just prostitutes for your emotions and your mind, you know, being a little bit of a jerk about that. But still, like these can be great tools. They can be a way of understanding who you are and, and understanding other people. But we put all this faith into them. We take them so seriously when they're just, it's contemporary narcissism. We think these things are the only way to understand these things. Meanwhile, they're, they're, they're controversial right now. People can't even agree on, you know, what defines these personality types. With schizoid, you have clinicians arguing over whether it is even a disorder at all. But we get attached to that and like this hyper categorization where it's just like everybody's got to be something because the alternative is too scary for people, which is like that nobody's normal 
few, very few people are normal, which actually means nobody's normal. If few people are normal, that means nobody is. Because to be normal means the largest number of people are similar in that way. But what we're finding is everybody has a million quirks. Everybody has a million synchronicities. They have like little mental tics. They have weird habits. Human beings are eccentric. They're imperfect and eccentric. Even really normal, boring people have their own eccentricities. And so, you know, nobody's really that normal. But we don't have to turn that around and hyper-categorize everybody. We can accept that nobody's normal, that normal doesn't really exist, without having to invent new categories to describe that. Just let people be. And if they have something wrong with them, or if, if their personality is, you know, if their disposition in life just affects them and other people negatively, well, it's great we have these tools. But beyond that, we don't need this. And we certainly don't need to live in a society where we're diagnosing everybody, people we don't even know, because you're going to misdiagnose them. You have no idea what you're talking about. You don't even know yourself. Most of these people, they don't even know themselves. It's interesting. It's interesting to live in a time where like people have developed this system where they've observed patterns in certain people. And those patterns are real. These behaviors are real. But the way that we've attempted to understand them is not real. Our current interpretation is as much an illusion as, as any interpretation we had of these things in the past. And there is a cultural bias, you know, that came up in this article where it's like there, there is a cultural bias to it. You know, for example, like Russians. Russians notoriously see kindness and expressions of happiness as a sign of weakness. Maybe that's a generalization, but I've heard that many times from people of Russian heritage. And if you, were to, if you were to take a Russian and put them in the United States, it's like someone might see that as disordered. Oh, these people see kindness as weakness? But in Russia, that probably makes a lot of sense. In cold, cold Russia, that, that way of thinking developed for a reason, even if it's not good. And I think about Scandinavians, and, you know, it, there was something in the... Because, I mean, Scandinavians tend to be this way, in my experience. Yeah, there's all types, you know, there's all types of people in Scandinavia. But culturally, you know, there, there is a certain stoicism, and I fight my own stoicism. One of the reasons why I try to express myself is because if I didn't make the effort, I would just be totally closed off. And part of my philosophy is to constantly rebel against myself, to constantly, like, stretch myself. So a lot of things I do are actually me fighting my natural tendencies. Like I'm not a naturally outgoing person, but I force myself to be outgoing because I like to stretch that. I like to defy myself. I feel like something whole and larger is created in me when I do that. I know that sounds grandiose, but hey, maybe I'm a schizoid with a, with a hidden sense of 
with hidden grandiosity and a sense of self-superiority. Who, who knows? Who cares? But uh, you know, there was something that people were talking about recently where Scandinavians are known for not offering people food. Scandin- like in Sweden, for example, like it's not considered normal when someone comes over to your house to just like present them with snacks or food. And even when, like a kid, I, I was reading how like even when a kid visits his friend's house, if his family's going to have dinner, it's not uncommon to send the friend home before dinner. I've lived that way my entire life. Like my next door neighbor was a kid. I was in and out of their house every day practically. We lived in each other's houses. We back and forth. And I would go over to his house and he had one of those families that all ate at the dinner table together. My family didn't do that. My mom, sister, and I, like, we would just, my mom would make dinner. We'd just sit in the living room and watch TV while we ate. We never sat at the table. I enjoyed it. I don't think we needed to sit at the table. And, uh, but I'd go over to my next-door neighbor's house, and his family was one of those families where they had three kids, the parents were married, and they would sit at the dinner table and talk. They would sit at the dinner table and talk. And uh, what was funny, though, is I'd be over there sometimes when they'd be about to have dinner. And his mom would be like, Eric, do you want to have dinner with us? And I'd say, no. And there were multiple times where I stayed at their house while they ate dinner in the other room. And I just watched TV by myself. And I'd hear them talking and like, it was just small talk. It was like, this summer, maybe we'll have you go to camp. And it just didn't make sense to me. Like, it didn't make sense to me to sit at the dinner table with them and eat with them. I wasn't there for that. And that might be seen as weird. I I remember feeling weird. It felt like the right thing for me. But I remember it feeling weird because here I am sitting in this family's living room watching Nickelodeon or something and their entire family is in the other room just watching or, or eating and talking over the dinner table. And here I am just like not even intentionally eavesdropping, but like hearing their conversation while I'm just in another world over here. But then finding out like Scandinavians have this weird relationship with guests and food. And my mom wasn't Scandinavian, so she was a little different. Like my mom was the type who would offer people food. She was more than happy to do that. But, you know, my dad's side of the family, like, we're less like that. Like, we're human beings and we eat. But it's like my grandpa, he never liked to have guests over for dinner. He felt like dinner should be family only. And he also felt that you shouldn't talk at the dinner table. He had a hard line rule about not talking at the dinner table. And as a kid, I kind of thought that was weird. I didn't, my grandparents lived across the street from me for most of my childhood my dad's parents. And I would go over there and stuff. I'd watch sports with my grandpa. But, uh, you know, like we didn't, I didn't have like dinner with them a lot. But I, 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 growing up, I knew that my grandpa had a rule about no talking at the dinner table and he didn't want to have anybody who wasn't family there. He just didn't like it. He didn't believe in eating dinner with people who weren't part of his family. And it wasn't a stingy thing, like we're giving food to other people. I think it was just a a comfort thing. 
I think it was a Scandinavian thing. Like finding out recently. I didn't even know this about Scandinavians. The Scandinavians don't offer food to their guests and will even like send their guests home before having dinner. I'm like, that's exactly like my grandpa's parents. His, his father was from Sweden, an immigrant. His mother was from Norway. So he was raised in a, an immigrant household of Scandinavians. Makes sense to me culturally that he was that way. And as a kid, I didn't completely understand it. Like I was like, oh, that's, it's kind of weird. Grandpa has a really serious rule about not talking at the dinner table. Like he truly didn't believe in talking at the dinner table. And as when I became an adult, I realized it. Like when I became an adult, I realized how much I hated when people talk at the dinner table, which is like, that's my issue. Because normal people love to talk and eat. I like to eat alone. And when I'm with people, I don't like to talk. I hate to talk about the food. Like when you're eating with people and they're like, oh, this is good. How's that? What do you think about this? It's like we're eating. This is a ritual. The ritual of eating means we don't think about anything except what we're doing. Hopefully it's something we like. So like our sensory uh, input is all focused on the food itself. There's no distraction. There's nobody talking with food in their mouth. When I became an adult, I had this epiphany one day. I think I was at dinner with people. And I was like, I understand why grandpa had that rule. I completely get it. I, If I could, I would have that rule. People think you're a dick for thinking that way. No guess, no talking. I don't mind giving people food. Like if someone comes over to my house, I don't mind giving someone food. It's not a stingy thing. It's not like, oh, this is my food. You can't have any. I just don't even think to offer it to them. I've never thought to like present food to a guest. There's something cultural to it. Finding out recently that this is a Scandinavian trait was really interesting and enlightening for me because it told me something about me and my family, my dad's side of the family. Like when I visit my dad and my uncle and stuff, it's like they cook for me and they, they offer me things. It's not, like I said, it's, it's not that they don't do that. But it's very much kind of like something you do with your close family, with like the people you love, not something you just do. And like I was talking to my friend uh, Tony, my, my friends Tony and Angelo. Tony's Polish, Angelo's Italian. And we were talking about this. And they come from the opposite world where their cultures, and Angelo grew up in Italy and came here as an adult, and uh, Tony, I don't, I don't know if his parents, I don't think his parents are immigrants, but it might be. Because his first, his first and last name is super Polish. Like even his, his true first name is a Polish name. It's, it's not Tony. It's, it's like Anton. I don't know if that's Polish, but it's like he has a very ethnic name. But he was saying like their families and, and their culture, it's very much like you walk in the door and food food you know it's it's part of the experience it's part of the social experience and 
if somebody doesn't accept your food, it's insulting too. Like some of these other cultures, like it's not just that you offer people this platter the second they walk in your door. It's also that like if they don't accept that, it's insulting. And it's funny because like if I on the rare occasion I offer somebody food, I'm not even remotely insulted. I don't even think it doesn't even cross my mind that there's any issue if they don't want it. So it's just interesting that there is something cultural, and it's not just food; it's it's personality types. I mean, my my friend Jesse was renting a a house here from this guy, John Erickson, who was like a seventy year old Scandinavian man. He had the exact same heritage I had. Like one of his parents, you know, for me it was my great grandparents, but like he's my dad's age, so one of his parents, I think it was, or one of his grandparents was from Sweden and the other one was from Norway, just like mine. And they had come to one of the Dakotas. I can't remember if it was North Dakota or South Dakota, but that's exactly what my family did. Like my great grandparents, they they came from Sweden and Norway to one of the Dakotas. Then they moved to Ballard in Seattle. And then I ended up down here. John Erickson, old enough to be my dad, his family had come from Sweden, Norway, to the Dakotas, to Ballard in Seattle, and he ended up down here. And my friend, she would hold, she would have parties at her house, and he lived on the property too. And he would come and get drunk, and he would get kind of out of out of hand, just this old man. But he, he was a lot of fun. I would just talk to him the whole time. And his name, I got a kick out of his name because, like, my name is Eric John. J O N. Eric John Stonefelt, and his name is John Erickson. So it's like we have the same names in our names. Like he's <laughs> he's John Erickson. I'm Eric John. So we were like this weird, like like mirror image of each other. And uh, one time, like we we went to dinner with him and drank a bunch, and he he disappeared. Like we left the restaurant and we were walking back to the cars and he disappeared because like he got too drunk so they weren't going to let him drive home and he disappeared and they found him in his car and he wasn't trying to drive home but he was sitting there blasting Roy Orbison crying and I, I fucking love Roy Orbison and I was like that's fuck he is me I was like John Erickson is me because he exact same heritage exact same immigration pattern and he, he he when he's drunk he gets in his car and blasts roy orbison by himself but anyway i was at a party where he was at and i have a picture of us there's a picture of us where like i'm in sunglasses on one knee next to it next to the chair he's sitting in and he has his arm around me and he's explaining something to me no doubt about scandinavia because we would just sit there and we would talk about scandinavia and he would school me. He would tell me things about Scandinavia I didn't even know. And he told me he, when he went there, he went around the farmland. And like my ancestors were farmers in Scandinavia. And he was saying how like he went around the farmland and he noticed that on every property, they had a barn and then they had already built a foundation for a new barn, but they hadn't built a barn on it. And he finally, he saw this so many times that he finally asked 
these farmers, like, what's up with this? I noticed that on every single farm, they've built a foundation in the ground for a new barn that they haven't built yet, but they already have a barn. And this farmer told him, like, oh, we do that, like, just so that we're ready. Like, in case something happens to the previous barn, we do that so that we can just quickly build one. Like, if our, if our existing barn gets damaged or, like, falls down, like, we already built the foundation for a new one, so we can just build a new one right away. And he told that to me, like, in this very pointed way, like, almost testing me. And I was like, it was a light bulb moment, and I was like, I understand. It was like some sort of ancestral knowledge hit me. And, and I could tell that, that's, that was, I could tell that was why he was telling me the story. It was, it was like he was telling me this weird little thing about like Scandinavian farmers building a f two foundations just in case something happens to the first one. And I was just like, I understand. That speaks to me. You build two foundations so that you have one just in case. <laughs> I, I have friends in Sweden and I, I've never asked them about that I'd be curious to, <laughs> I'd be curious if that's if that means anything to them I'd be curious if that has any meaning at all but uh, to me it did and to John Erickson it did but you start to pick up on those things like the, like the cultural bias and like there's some Scandinavian people where it's like just like Russian people or, or Asians or anybody, where it's like there are certain personality characteristics that you have. And in a place like America, whereas, you know, we're dealing with a lot of different people. Like, I'm very fascinated by people's backgrounds. Like, I like to know what someone's heritage is. And... Uh, You know, uh, like, and, and I'm not afraid to ask. Like, I met this guy. He was dating a friend of mine, and he was at a party, and he was like half Asian. He, he was he was he was talking about something, and I asked him. I was like, "What's your heritage?" Or I was like, "What are you?" Which you know, it's considered an it's considered an offensive question now. And he's like, "You mean my heritage?" And I was like, "Yeah," because I could tell there was like something kind of different about him. And he was like, "Oh, he's like I'm half Korean, half Norwegian." And I was like, ah. And so we talked about that for a bit. But I'm very interested. I mean, the first time I ever talked to Michael DiLeonardo, the guy who used to be a, uh, a member of the Gambino family and the mafia, first thing we talked about was heritage. Like, the mafia was obsessed with it. He was saying when he was growing up in the mafia, everybody's always talking about, like, well, where in, where in Italy did you come from? Sicily or Calabria? And then if you're from Sicily, it's what was your hometown? And hometown played a huge role in the formation of mafia. Like, mafia families were formed around their hometown, their village. And even in his time, you know, he's, he's probably close to 70 years old now. So he's not, you know, he, he's from the modern era. But he was saying, like, you know, when, you, when he would meet guys who came here from Italy and Sicily... And they would have dinner, like they're going to talk about your hometown. It's just, it's an important thing. Like it, we have characteristics based on that. And you know, America like had this whole narrative for so long that was like, oh, none of that matters. And I understand the idea that it, that it doesn't matter in terms of like judging people. 
Like you shouldn't judge people based on their heritage for the most part. <laughs> but uh, it's it's something though that like America kind of tried to deny. And, and it was a, it was a well-meaning denial in some ways because it was like, oh, we have a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds and we know that that can cause rivalry and tension and animosity. So let's try to like downplay ethnic differences here in America and just have one common American identity. We've seen where that's fallen completely by the wayside. We're more divide we're more ethnically divided right now than ever in my lifetime. But I'm that way with white people. Like, that's why I always laugh at this whole white people thing. That means nothing to me. White wh white means nothing. I don't relate to Irish people. I don't relate to a number of people who are white. I don't necessarily relate to, to Germans, you know, to some degree maybe. But it's like, I wouldn't say that. I don't know why I'm going on about that. My best friend growing up was German-Irish. So it's like, I, I obviously relate to Germans and Irish. I'm just, I'm just throwing those out as examples, like where it's like, just because you're white doesn't mean that we share the same characteristics. And I think it's interesting to know what you are. And sometimes it ends up making sense. Like when you find out what someone's background is, it ends up making a certain amount of sense why they are the way they are. I mean, some people are such mutts, like I'm a mutt. I call myself Scandinavian, but that's only one part of my heritage. It's like my last name is Scandinavian. I was raised with that as my identity. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much paternally Scandinavian. I, I was raised being told about that. People, as a kid, people would buy me like little children's books about Vikings and Scandinavia You'd go to things, you'd hear things. It was always there. We didn't eat Scandinavian food because it turns out we don't give a fuck. Scandinavians don't give a fuck about food. That's what we've learned. But it was there. And, and it's just, it's, there are unique traits that different people have. Different peoples. They, they like to call them peoples, I hear. They're peoples. It always sounds so dumb. The peoples. The peoples. But no, the peoples are different. That's even within white people. The idea that, that white people are all the same is just always funny to me. I like to know, if you're white, I like to know what kind of white. Because that's meaningless to me. Where does your family come from? And if you don't know, well, that's interesting too. But thinking back about growing up in the Seattle area, in the suburbs of Seattle, I didn't realize until I was older how many people I knew had Scandinavian surnames. There were all these kids I went to school with, and I never thought about what they were. And much later, I was like, when I think back about some of these kids, I'm like, Scandinavians, Scandinavians. It, it was just everywhere because there were so many Scandinavian immigrants in that area. And my dad knew it. Like, my dad would always point that out. Like, he grew up in an earlier generation. And when he would talk about his classmates, he would say, well, they're Swedes. Well, they're Norwegian. He just knew that about his classmates. And, and they were closer to the, you know, like my dad's grandparents were born in Scandinavia. So it was something that, that was even closer to him. 
and he's been there. My dad traveled around. He lived there for a while. He spent a, a period living there, staying with our cousins there. And I've met my cousins from there. I've met my cousin, Stefan. And uh, what was I going to say? That, and that's an interesting thing, too. The fact that, you, that my family had cousins over there who my dad stayed with. And Stefan was a little boy at the time when my dad lived there. And then when Stefan became an adult, he came over here and stayed with us for a little while. My family had a Swedish exchange student. One of my good friends growing up, his family had multiple Swedish exchange students. I never really thought about that. It just kind of seemed normal. But now that I'm older, I'm like, oh yeah, that, that was, we were, we were, as American as we were, we still had a strong connection to our ethnic roots. Even friends of mine, even families I knew, things like that. Like one summer, these two Finnish violinists, these girls, these two Finnish girls who were violinists stayed at our house during that summer because they were doing some sort of symphony thing in the U.S. And they, they were exchange students. But we only ever had Scandinavians live with us. And it was just a couple times, but... For whatever reason, though, it was like some people would get exchange students from here or there, like Germany, Japan. But it's like in, in the environment I grew up in, you tended to have Scandinavians. And it's kind of weird to me to think now that like I have blood relatives in Scandinavia who came and stayed with us. You know, you don't really, you think of yourself as very disconnected from your roots. But I didn't even think of like how that influenced my mindset, but I think it did. And then when I meet people like John Erickson, it's like we talked about our roots. Like we had these drunken, intense conversations about like weird little philosophical nuances, like Scandinavian farmers building two foundations at once just in case, that cautiousness. And I've, I've had to rebel against that cautiousness because I'm a naturally very cautious person. I like to plan things and I'm very cautious, but I've kind of rebel. That's kind of part of like the internal rebellion, rebelling against yourself is being like, I know I have these tendencies, but I want to stretch myself. I want to, you know, push my, my own boundaries a little bit. Anyway, I was talking about, I, I, th I guess I started out reading some shitty article, didn't I? Started this out reading a, just an, an obnoxious article about how people study the science shows that people look at porn because they're bored. And then I read an entire Wikipedia article about schizoid personality. And then I started talking about how cultural biases impact our view of different personality types, which is one of the arguments that's been used against some of these categories we've created because people from different places have different personalities. Yeah. Within those cultures, there are different personalities too. Not everybody's the same, but there is a cultural climate. And, you know, we, we basically have to relearn this shit every number of years because we, we die. If human beings live for a thousand years, we would probably have a completely different understanding, but it's like we live for a very short amount of time 
we're usually overtaken by contemporary narcissism because we don't know anything else. And then we die and somebody else has to relearn it and, and usually they have their own ideas and things change. We don't really settle on very many ideas. Like most of the ideas we have about who we are are not very permanent. They're not static. And they change. And we convince ourselves, though, that our, our current understanding is exactly what it is. Oh, we get things, we understand things perfectly right now, but it's changing before our very eyes. I enjoy the subject of psychology, you know, as much as I push back on it, I enjoy it because I enjoy examining the mind and why people do what they do. And as someone who really enjoys and takes a great interest in observing patterns in people and seeing different types of people, archetypes, Psychology plays into that. I mean, Carl Jung was a psychologist and he was Mr. Archetype. All about the archetypes. So you can't really separate those things. So I'm, I'm very interested in psychology. I love psychology, in fact. But it's gotten, it's gotten into such a weird place, especially now that it's so popular, now that it's so institutionalized. You know, there's so much bullshit to it that I have to push back on it. And there's so much contemporary narcissism that colors it. Like, oh, this is exactly how things are. I feel like you could learn just as much by being like, just look at someone's astrology and their ethnic heritage. <laughs> you, can know as, you can know an equal, if not greater amount of somebody by being like, hey, what's your background? Because like, when I've asked people about that, and I'm not an asshole about it, you know, but I like to talk. It's way more interesting than like what you watched last week. I'd way rather talk to somebody about their ethnic heritage and like what they know about it and what it means to them than whatever they watched on Netflix. And, you know, just in the same way, like somebody in the 1960s, like hippies would go up to each other at parties and be like, what's your astrology sign? I think it's a totally valid question to be like, what's your heritage? Not so I can judge you, but because it's interesting. What do you know about your heritage? What do you feel about that? Not because you eat this kind of food on this day, but like, how does your heritage inform who you are? How does it inform your psychology? Anyway, I gotta go to bed. So, uh, you got to hear me read about schizoid. It's an interesting personality because there's so little information on it. Schizoid is, the way I see schizoid personality is it, it's kind of like one of those fish who lives in the deepest, darkest part of the ocean. Like we know it's there. They tend to be, they look gruesome. They're intimidating. But they're usually pretty benign. They just kind of float around the bottom of the ocean. But we know very little about them. We have very little information. We've, we've seen them very rarely. They don't want much to do with us. They're not sharks coming to the beach. They're down in the, the deep ocean abyss doing their own thing. It's kind of what schizoid personality is like. And as a result, we know a limited amount about it. It's a deep ocean fish. 
lives in the abyss. But anyway, I'm going to bed here. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free